0: Take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll read the last verse, Nehemiah chapter 9, and then on into chapter 10. CJ, thank you so much for uh, leading us today. Jonathan and his family are on their way back from vacation, and I just appreciate CJ so much stepping in and and, uh, doing such a great job leading us in worship of our great and glorious God. Now, we're going to read uh, verse 38, chapter 9 of Nehemiah, jump into chapter 10 and go through verse 30, but take heart, I am not going to try to read all of the names, 84 names. I will just hit the high points as we walk through. So this will serve as a springboard for what we are going to say today. Nehemiah chapter 9 beginning in verse 38. Let me set some context before we read. Children of God are experiencing revival. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And so out of that sense of confession brought about by the Word and by the Spirit, uh, they now have come to a place of recommitting themselves, rededicating their lives to walk in the covenants of God. And so we pick up that thought uh, in chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governors and others, now down to verse 8. These are the priests, verse 9, and the Levites, verse 10, and their brothers, verse 14, the chiefs of the people, Now drop down to verse 28, if you would. To summarize, here's what he says. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Father, it is on my heart, and I know the heart of the people here gathered today, those who know you, those who love you, those who come with a sincere spirit to, uh, to worship you and to learn from you, that we experience just a little bit of what they did back then and others have through the years, and that is the sense of true revival to live again, And Father, we ask you now that you guide us in these moments when we seek to lead out the the meaning for us. This happened many, many years ago, but it has meaning for us who live today right here in this building. And I pray that we would get it and we wouldn't miss it so that we could walk with you. Help us to commit our lives afresh and anew to that very thing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Are you born again? Are you a Christian? Those two things are synonymous. This last week, our seven-year-old granddaughter was spending the night with us. And at the end of the day, and she was still bouncing around, but we got her to bed and read a Bible story to her and began to talk to her about the meaning. And she, she came out with a question that I, I thought, being a very proud grandfather, of course, was very mature for her young age. She said, Pops, how do you know that you're a Christian? And all of these thoughts started running through my mind, but I went back to the beginning, and I kind of gulped real hard, and I thought, is she going to be able to get all of this? And I said, Micah, it has to do with you coming to the realization that God is holy, and you're not. And you come to a place where you realize that you've sinned against God. And you know there's only one hope for sinners like us, and that's in Jesus Christ. And so how we're saved and how you know you're a Christian is that you, you have turned away from sin. That's a big word called repentance. And you've turned to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it went on and said, now Micah, that reality that's happened to you will impact Everything you do in your life, it's kind of like when a tree is planted. And if it has good roots, it's going to produce good fruit. Probably out of all of that theological explanation that I gave, she might have understood this much. But the fact of the matter is that I know that her mom and dad are also sharing that with her as I know that many men and women and grandparents are sharing that with your family as well, so that what we do when we say that we're Christians impacts every part of our lives. Now, with that said, my guess is that there are some in this audience today who would say, I'm not so sure if my life has been showing that in the last little while. And that's why this passage out of the book of Nehemiah is so incredibly important to us. We've been studying for a while, for those of you who are with us for the first time, through Ezra, inserting Esther between verse chapter 6 and 7 in Ezra, and then on in through Nehemiah, and an incredible thing has just happened. If you'll remember, Ezra was the rebuilder of the temple, the presence of God, And he wept over the people just as Jesus did in his day. And then Nehemiah came along, and he was the rebuilder of the walls. And he also wept over the spiritual condition of the people, even as Jesus did. And over the last several weeks, we've seen something. We saw that the people completed the walls and the gates. And then, wonder of wonders, this, if you'll remember back a couple of weeks I thought was a glorious thing, the people called for Ezra to come and read the word. He wasn't trying to get them to do anything. They just wanted to hear the word, and as Ezra read the word, now it indicates that there was some comment and some explanation of the word, the people began to understand something. It began to sink into their hearts that they had defected from God as their fathers had, and they began to weep they begin to cry out. They begin to confess their sins and to repent of those sins and enter into a time of revival. And I am always, uh, just so you'll know, I'm always impacted by the studies that I do to come and preach every sermon that I preach but The last several weeks have made a huge impact in my life in terms of, Lord, what do we do? What do I do to up the ante, to make sure that I am confessing each day and and, and bathing as we've been singing together, bathing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then out of that, living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, not for approval, but out of the approval Jesus gives in the cross. and So I believe that as we read through the people that lived about 2,400 years ago that we will see because there's not anyone here who doesn't sin. And so today here's what I'm sharing with you. We all need that deep sense of conviction and confession and repentance turning away and looking to the gospel. And I'm so glad that we have a chance to come back to the end uh, of this sermon today and to take the Lord's Supper together. Today we see a picture of God's people. I'm going to use a word that's going to have different meanings and connotations to different people in this congregation. They rededicated their lives to following God, to being distinct from the peoples around them, to coming back to what they really were, called out people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as the Apostle Peter would later say. So, there are several things we need to look at, and you see it there on your outline, several quotes. I'll refer to at least one of those. And so, here's the first question. The po- first point is this, growing out of this particular passage of scripture. And I believe this is what they were doing. Here's the the heartfelt question that probably all of you need to ask. Do I, take it personally, okay? Do I really need to rededicate my life? Follow up? If so, how often? So let's look at that. Because of the gospel, Because of the gospel, you and I should desire to rededicate our lives every day to a renewed walk with God through Christ. Let me say something right now to perhaps a person who's come in today and... uh, you would profess faith in Christ, and I'm not going to argue you out of that or into it. You believe that you're a, a, a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, or at least you used to be, but there has been something that has happened, and you have a backlog of sins, and you've just allowed those sins to remain and sometimes to continue, You've been, as a friend of mine used to say it like this, you've been dipping and dabbing in sin. And you're convicted of it, but never enough to really do something about it. Now, remember this, this scenario right here, Nehemiah chapter 10. It's been a hundred years since the Jews returned to Jerusalem to build the temple, the gates and the walls. And just like us, their walk with God had had its share of ups and downs. And if there is one thing that I see in this passage of Scripture for them and for you and for me, it is never too late for a new beginning. And if there was a time in your life when you were hot for Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. And that's cooled off. And for some of you, I mean really cooled off. Maybe it's become cold. Maybe you're just lukewarm. Maybe it's because of a particular season of life in which you find yourself. And even as I say that, I, I would hope that every one of you is thinking, oh, he's talking about me. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to... Our students are going through a season of life where maybe you've struggled with certain things and you've been dipping and dabbing. Our young adults, young family, maybe that season of life is for you and then you zip to the other end of the spectrum, somebody like me. Maybe that season of life has new challenges, but the result is the same. It's easy to just take for granted what God has done in your life like they did, and fall into the sin of having a ho-hum kind of existence in your followership of the Lord. You know that you were created for something better than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, the old, he's a new creation, the old is passed away. And that That is a a once-for-all kind of thing with with a continuing result. Behold, the new has come. And that's a once-for-all kind of thing with a continuing result. Yes, a once-for-all reality, but also a daily reality. And something as simple as a rededication. Let me just throw one out there that I talk about a lot. To a daily reality routine of studying God's Word, letting it speak to you, and speaking to the Lord, sometimes we call that a quiet time. Or maybe it's something as deep as a turnaround. You know that you're in a relationship, or you know that you're in a situation where you need to to, to leave that situation, and you feel like it's just dragging you down You wonder if you can ever get out of that situation. So, let's look at this word, rededication. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Okay. So, it's got different meanings for different people. Rededication means a coming back to a covenant commitment. And for those of us who grew up as Baptists, and who experienced perhaps from another day, and it's still around, what I will call revivalism. We talked about this last week, a couple of weeks ago. Revivalism, where where you, you had the, the the annual meetings, and uh, an evangelist would come, and uh, they would come, and they would preach. Usually, it was a began with a Sunday. Back when we had Sunday night services, it would continue Sunday night. And you would have gotten out already and you would have gotten placards on the door or maybe you had knocked on doors and invited your friends to come to a revival meeting and the the students would have pizza and all the rest of that and you would come. And then at the end of the time, there would be a report. You remember that, don't you? And the report would go something like this. We had, well, if it was a really good revival, it would be a bunch. We had 20, watch this, first-time decisions to follow Christ. That's phraseology, which is not really wrong. It probably could be stated in a better fashion. But 21st time, that meant people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the time, it was kids. By the way, that was the first time when I was 11 years old that I came under tremendous conviction and walked the aisle during a revival. So please don't hear me putting that down. But here's something else that would be added. We had 21st time decisions and we had 84 rededications. Now, there were only 104 people in the church. So you either got saved for the first time or you rededicated your life. And, and many times it's very sincere and many times very real. And there was very real change. And, and so, is that a biblical concept? Here's my answer yes and no. How'd you know that? Here are some things that we need to know. Is rededication of your life a biblical concept? Well, Paul said this to the church at Galatia. If anyone is caught in a a, a transgression, you who are spiritual, watch this, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there is a need in the church of Jesus Christ when someone is caught. And that doesn't mean they got found out by another person. They just they were entrapped and they needed to be restored. And then in Revelation, boy, that, that's a book of churches all over the place that needed to be rededicated. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. It could be expressed by, by coming out of a time of backsliding. Has anybody besides me ever backslidden? Several who were honest. Now, back, listen, listen. Backsliding, in case you didn't know, backsliding can happen in one of several ways. Here, here's God and here's where I need to be. And yet I'm, I'm dipping and dabbing in some other stuff. And so I've slidden back from where I need to be in my walk with the Lord. That's a common definition of backsliding. But do you realize that we're never supposed to remain static in the Christian life? So as you need to be advancing, there are times, and I know it's true of you, it's been true of me, when we just say, you know, Lord, I'm pretty comfortable right where I am right now. I'll just stay there. And the Lord did wanted you to walk on with him. Well, look at the distance. It's the same as if you had backslidden. There are times when you come to a place where you realize, I need to rededicate my life to the covenant that I had through the blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. Now, let me just warn you of a problem with that because there are some who misunderstand Grace. And and I've seen this, where somebody came under conviction, that means they they really feel guilty and they don't understand that we have been saved and we have been preserved to the end and we will make it to the end. And so, watch this, their assurance of salvation is not based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, but rather their own ability to do certain things in a good way. And there are times when this thing called rededication, if that doesn't underlie the, lie the truth of that, then it becomes, it becomes a hindrance and a stumbling block. And I've seen that many, many times. I can't tell you the number of times. And, and particularly, it, it can happen with adults, but a lot of times it'll happen with students. They go away to a camp or they go away to a great experience and they, they come back all revved up, and a week later, they're back to where they were. And so what do they do the next Sunday? What do they do? They come down front, they rededicate themselves. And they rededicate themselves. And it's an endless cycle that can lead to a lot of frustration. So we, we need to understand certain things. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So that no one will boast, but look at the follow-up to that. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's a better way of handling the rededication thing, and this is why the daily quiet time is so important. I'm going to blast you with about three different verses here. Are you ready? For those of you who record verses, it ought to be a daily renewal of our walk with God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Classic. It should guide your thinking all of the time. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice once for all to God, but then continuing, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that means you've got to be putting something into your mind to be renewed by That is the Word of God, energized by the Spirit of God. Luke 9, 23, classic verse. If anyone would come after me, follow me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, the instrument of death, and follow me. And then 1 John 1, 9 should remind us. Now, this could be controversial. Some people believe this talks about... The initial salvation, if you look at the verses right before it and right after it, the person who says that he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So, what's the follow-up? If we confess our sins, we've already been cleansed. So, there's that need for that daily confession. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's, it's a little bit like being... Married. Believe it or not, I have sinned against my wife. I won't go into any details. Sometimes, almost on a daily basis, it seems like. Well, what I'm saying is, I don't need to go back and marry her all over again. But in order for the relationship to survive and thrive, I probably ought to confess that sin out of the fact that we are married and get back into her good graces. I want you to look at the first quote here, Jonathan Edwards. I'm not going to take it for granted that all of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the the early 1700s. Jonathan Edwards was a man who was greatly used by God for revival in his day. The Great Awakening of 1735 in the the colonies was largely due to Jonathan Edwards. He died at 52. This was before that. So he, he was a young man, a pastor. And it wasn't Listen, it wasn't because that he was just this young, dynamic, excitable kind of guy that got everybody revved up. In fact, his sermons were deeply theological. Normally, they were on some aspect of our justification in Christ. And it is said that he would read his sermons. Now, I've got my sermon notes here, but I don't read. But it's said of Jonathan Edwards that he would read his sermons not with a lot of inflection, excitability, and God so moved from the Word, kind of like in Nehemiah's day. Look at the parallel. that He, he wasn't even aware what was happening in the congregation. People would be weeping. People would come under conviction, the Word and the Spirit, and they they would be falling to their knees with deep, deep conviction and crying out to God, and he just kept reading his sermons. God brought not only a revival at the Church of Northampton, but also a great awakening to all of the areas in New England. Now, Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19, 19, because he wanted to dedicate and rededicate his life to the Lord every day, at least once a week, he made a vow that he would read, he wrote 70 resolutions. He was 19. His first resolution was the one that I've recorded up on the top of your quotes there, resolved, that I will do whatever I think. Listen to this, a 19-year-old. We typically give our... We don't. We don't. We, We call our young people... To, to holiness and to service and that kind of thing. But typically, in a lot of places, we give our young people a bye. We just say, well, they're, they're not old enough and mature enough. Here's Here was his attitude resolved. Here's my resolve, that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory. Wow. And my own good, Romans 8, 29. Profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Okay, not in this, not not in this church, and we're, we're you know, because we we we've been taught these kinds of things. But how would that go over in a lot of churches? I can tell you this: that there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ who would say, "That's legalistic. That guy is so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly good." And yet his life would say that's not true because he was used mightily by God. I'm I'm making a, a specific application to our students and to some of you young people who think that you cannot make a difference in your world today. You can. By rededicating your life right now, today, to live for the Lord Jesus Christ when you fail, what do you do? You confess your sins, you run to the cross, and you get the gospel all over again. I think sadly that the problem is that c s lewis said we 're of we 're so earthly minded we 're of no heavenly good the jews individually let 's get back to uh, Do I really need to rededicate my lives? They individually and corporately confessed and turned away from their sin, from their defection. They renewed their commitment. What do we learn from it? We learn from it that the same thing... We're not looking for any kind of experience per se but we're looking for genuine revival and renewal. Individually, I am, and in our lives and in our family's life. But how's that going to get done? Let's go on to point, well, number two, I guess it is, dedicated leaders who lead by example. Now, I mentioned this a minute ago. What do you observe from the list of names that we skipped over? What do you observe? Okay, what else do you observe? Eighty-four names. Please hear me on this. Eighty-four men. Starting with Nehemiah, the governor, then 22 priests, 17 Levites, 44 leaders and heads or chiefs of the people. This is absolutely consistent with the creation mandate that men led in this situation and should lead today in renewal and rededication in families and in the church. We read the last verse of chapter 9, simply because it goes in. Here's Here's what the men were saying. They had come to this. The whole people of God were confessing. They were repenting. What's next? And here's what the men said. We're signing up for what our responsibility is. We have been called since creation to lead our families, starting with our wives, our children, our extended family, our nation, so that we can speak to the world around us. We are not waiting passively. We are taking the initiative personally, and we're signing our names to it. That, that's essentially what they were doing. Now, here is what is interesting about this. As I read through this, I looked and I looked again. There was no pushback. There was nothing unusual about this. It was not, please hear me, it was not made into a man versus woman issue, oppressed versus the oppressor. It was not a cultural issue. It was a God, hear me, ordained, a God-ordained assignment of roles and responsibilities, a getting back to God's original design of male headship. Now, if you think that I've overstated and that's Old Testament, listen, listen, please listen. God's Word, and God is not determined. His plans are not determined by the culture. And for us to go back and say, that was Old Testament. They were in a different culture. God's Word is perfect. And we jump to the New Testament 400 and some odd years later, and here's the Apostle Paul saying the same thing, written... As the perfect Word of God. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Now, just make sure we start there. But we do not negate the part that comes. And the head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So it was the men who led as they should have back then and as we should now. Here's a statement for us. This is a biblical reality. Families need fathers as much as they need mothers. The church needs men who will see our God ordained responsibilities. And I'll tell you what, I am swimming upstream to make a statement like this. Now, it's not the first time I've made it. Several weeks back, I actually used the word that is such a wonderful word that has been it's been hijacked by our culture, the word patriarchy where men lead under the leadership of Christ. And what has happened since the fall in the garden? And it's a horrible, horrible thing. That some men, even in the church, fall into a walking away from the role that they were created. Pronounce. you know when God created man and woman and brought them together and gave them their responsibilities of headship and followership, helpership if you will, he said that's very good and it was only after the fall that we see all of the things going on today caused by first Adam's rebellion against God, the curse that distorted and disfigured God's design Now, it shouldn't surprise us if the world around us, if if we see the the horrors that we see in men and women relationships. And sometimes, sadly, it comes to the church. It shouldn't surprise, shock, but never surprised. Jesus described what's going to happen in the world around us. Look, they're going to seek to lord it over you. Don't be surprised if people seek to do that. That is not God's way. Some people would say, no, 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 just, just wait, Marty. What about, what about the things that go on? And what about your statement that families need fathers as well as mothers? I'm going to come to that in just a second. But, but here is what I want to say from this passage of scripture. And I really believe we're talking about revival As always, Berean Spirit, test me out in this if I'm pushing it too far. But I really believe that if we saw, men, I'm talking to the men, if we saw our defection in whatever way, that's up to the Holy Spirit to show you whatever way, if we saw our defection and we rededicated our lives to a serious commitment to follow the Lord, and protect our sons and daughters, like he's talking about in just a few moments, that we would see a revival, at least in our church. I'm not saying we're not doing it at all. I'm just saying that if we scoped it out, and we saw what we were given in terms of responsibility, it would change the face of families and church and maybe even our nation. Does, does our nation... Now, our nation can't experience revival. You do understand that, don't you? They can't. Revival, to live again, is something that Christians experience. But our nation, much like in 1735 with Jonathan Edwards, when revival came to the church, spiritual awakening came to the nation. Does our church... Nation needs spiritual awakening. And the answer is yes. Where does it start? It starts in the church with a revival, and it goes further back to the men taking the roles for which they were created. It's kind of interesting that the very last verse of the Old Testament, let's move on, move back to this. Malachi, did I get it? Oh, no, we're going to move on from this. What I did here, and I, I'm not going to do this, I'll just... Uh, I did a section on on, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I went all the way through that. That's something that you know that you can read for yourself. But I always say this in my premarital counseling. If you will do, if you will simply do the things written in Ephesians 5, I will guarantee you a great and God-honoring marriage. Mutual submission, it just simply means that we will submit to our spouses in the way that God has ordained our God-given roles. Now, I mentioned Malachi just a minute ago. The last verse of the Old Testament. God could have said anything. There was silence for 400 years until the coming of Christ. What's the last thing that God said to his people? He talked about the future coming of the Messiah and what was going to be one of his major works. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A minute ago I said families need fathers as well as mothers. Let me tweak that just a bit. Spirit-filled. Fathers and mothers. Question, what about fatherless homes? Grandfathers, step it up. Uncles, family members. Paul tells the church to provide for your own family. And in the church of Jesus Christ, there have been given gifts. And God will make sure that every need is fulfilled. Not just needs in the church, needs for whiz kids, other kinds of things, but needs in the family. Okay. Second and last, or third and last, and then we're going to move into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. What was the main thing that they were charged with doing Leading their families to a radical commitment to holiness and set apart living. Did you notice that? It said at the very ending of that that we will not give our daughters to the sons of the of the Gentiles. We will not take their sons for our sons-in-law. First Peter 1:14 through 16 is obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then a verse that we've looked at, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And one of the primary charges of the fathers was to lead their homes and their church to being set apart, to being holy. I'm not talking about holier than thou, An affected kind of goodness. I'm talking about true holiness that is separated from sin, separated to God. By the way, this conversation starts early. For, and so for those of you who have young children, start these conversations now about being equally yoked. So where does that all come back to? A lot of people would be saying, wow. Wow. How am I going to pull that off? You're not in the power of the flesh, but only in the power of the Spirit. And this is why the gospel is so important for everything that we do. Look at what Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put into you and I will remove the heart of stone. This is gospel. From your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We want to be a church that is rededicated on a daily basis to pursuing hotly the things of God. And the only way that will happen is through the gospel reality of being born again, a new heart being filled with the Spirit and applying the gospel, Christ crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures, Christ buried, Christ raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, applying that to everything that we do. Father, I thank you and now want to, as we transition into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, I want to pray, first of all, for anyone who is here today who has never trusted in Christ, who's never turned away from their sins and believed. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation, a new beginning, a new start. And I pray for those of us who already know you. Perhaps there has been a backlog of sin patterns that we have allowed to remain. Today, Lord, I pray that we would rededicate our lives afresh and anew to following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Father, I pray for the men of this church, particularly husbands, fathers, grandfathers, everyone who is set in the family to be a spiritual head that they would lead wisely. And Lord, that today, perhaps during this time of communion, this time of the Lord's Supper, that it would be a fresh new beginning for everyone in this room. We thank you and we praise you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.